Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world we live in, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my lovely partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. Uh, you can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. She insists on that forward slash chat, you know. We do have some truly great folks that join us every week, so Ravinder, tell us all about the chat room, please. Yeah, without the forward slash chat, you won't find me. So, yes, go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Join a great group of people, learn something new, share your ideas with us. We would very much like that. We have lots of fun there. So see you there, provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's Spotlight, I'd like to present a sort of thought experiment. Imagine a world of information packets, a world where what we label as energy and mass is indeed a composition of information exchange, information exchange of information packets. How can we come to understand such a world? Think of the universe as intelligence. When we master an observation and express it mathematically and so forth, what we've really done is grasp some part of this intelligence. The intelligence, somewhat analogously to our own, is compiled of information units. We think of these units when it comes to our own thinking as units of knowledge, and we knit them together in order to understand our world and its inhabitants, including, of course, our fellow human beings. We begin our learning process in the very beginning when we draw our first breath. Little by little, the information begins to accumulate, and soon we experience our first appreciation for an intelligible environment. Slowly, our belief in this intelligibility garners momentum until we begin to think that we might just be able to control our own lives. What exactly is this intelligibility, and why is it that we begin to believe we may be masters of our own destinies? It's nothing more or less than packets of information, call it learning, that enter our compiler, our mental state, and in aggregate delivers the computation, our thoughts, our actions. It's not energy despite the fact that it may have taken what we call energy to obtain and may appear to be a form of energy when retrieved. Nevertheless, all of these units of information form our intelligence, and intelligence itself is neither energy nor mass. So once again, just imagine a world, our world, undergirded by intelligence and knowable in certain discrete packets. How would that change our understanding? Is it any closer or more consistent to what we have learned from quantum physics and the mechanical models derived from a world of shoes and ships and sealing wax? Like a holograph, any piece of which contains the information of the whole, packets of information, units of intelligence, each an aspect of a greater whole, 
Consider this as just one form of an intelligent universe expressing itself. What seems to be inexplicable intelligent behavior in other species, some without any nervous system, might not be so mysterious after all if it is regarded as the operation of this broader maximizing principle. For example, scientists have noted seemingly intelligent behavior in slime molds, a sort of gelatinous uh, amoeba sometimes found in the backyard. Indeed, one species can solve mazes, mimic the layout of man-made transportation networks, and choose the healthiest food from a diverse menu. And all of this without a brain or a nervous system. So is it far-fetched to think of the universe in this way, as intelligence of one kind or another expressing itself in everything around us? One might argue that, well, it's possibly all just some algorithm that gives rise to what we call intelligence. But then again, that's just playing with definitions. The algorithm itself may be the basis of everything we come to think of as intelligence, and if so, that in no way would alter the basic proposition that packets of information are built from the algorithm, and this thereby leads to what we call intelligence. Not long ago on this show, we had an intriguing conversation with Professor William Bengston about some of his healing work. Bengston has developed a teachable technique that heals mice of cancer, Interestingly, his method does not employ either traditional or alternative procedures such as energy healing. That said, the blood of treated mice can be used to cure mice of cancer. His work has been replicated at six different universities in more than ten replications. And again, there is no spiritual component, no laying on of the hands, no vaccines, and so forth. No. His protocol calls for passing on an information packet needed by the mice to heal. Indeed, the training includes how to pass this packet on passively, that is, without forced or concentrated effort. What's more, it appears to work as well at two feet as it does at 2,000 miles from the target mice. As such, the notion of energy is obviously an inadequate explanation since energy dissipates over distance. Information packets passing between humans and mice? Why not? Ask any pet owner and they'll tell you that their animal friends get them all the time. The fact is, very solid research has shown that dogs do know when their owners are coming home. How? Again, information units... I suggest that very many so-called anomalies can be easily understood and explained if we begin to think of our world as one constituted by units of information that build the intelligence that is the universe we live in. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, I have to tell you, I find the intelligent slime mold absolutely fascinating. It's like, go through a maze, mold, yeah, that was just really cool. But the work of, of Bengston's as well, you know, the most intriguing part to me of all of that 
was the fact that there is actually a physical response to his treatment, whatever that that is, and I didn't quite, you know, understand that exactly what he was doing. But you have this physical response where antibodies are being produced, and it can be transferred, you know, using a injection transfusion to other mice as well. So that goes way beyond a placebo effect. That's not a. That's right. That's not a. You know, a belief that something's going to work. You're not transferring other information. This is actually very physical. So, yeah, I think that's definitely worth exploring a whole lot more. I mean, I want to know exactly what it is he's doing. Well, I, you know, I have this whole new scheme of the universe, I'm afraid, and I am, as far as I'm concerned, I'm beginning to ask questions like, well, how could information packets square with what we think of as free will? How could information packets square with what we think of as one mind? How could, and so on and so forth. And you begin to build an entirely new uh, cosmology, if you will. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Naomi wrote, I have enjoyed your new book, Gotcha, so much. I admire the careful and detailed research as every statement has true facts sustaining them. Your research confirms how many media shows have actually been promoting their agendas. Dishonesty is often praised. Gotcha will help the reader to become immune as they can distinguish critically what you consume from the media, and that gives you freedom to choose better. Greg wrote, I, Eldon, I was a teacher for 20 years and saw the destruction of young minds, hearts, souls, and bodies in a system that vitiates creativity in the individual. We taught self-esteem and self-concept. We never taught self-respect. This was and still is missing from society in general. Thank you for your thoughts about living a productive and joyful life. This is validating. Bob wrote, Hi, Ravinder. I call Barnes & Noble where I have a discount and ordered Eldon's book, Gotcha, so I will be reading it soon. My friend Laura borrowed the last of Eldon's books I had titled Mind Programming and told me it is her Bible, so I may just have to purchase another copy and let her keep that one. Mark wrote, I started reading Gotcha a couple of weeks ago, and I just finished reading the first hundred pages. I enjoy it very much, but also find the information a bit distressing, especially the section on Edward Bernays, the idea that he applied many of Freud's ideas on human nature to propaganda is sinister and still used today, although in a much more sophisticated way, as you point out. Okay, if you've not read Gotcha, you owe it to yourself to do so soon, just this week, a new study uh, illustrated how much of our behavior is literally predetermined by our programming. And if you're not conscious of what and how this is being done on a near 24-7 basis, then I'm afraid you're living under the illusion of choice. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Becoming Aware, How to Repattern Your Brain and Revitalize Your Life with author and radio show host, Lisa Gar. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Since 1999, Lisa Gar has hosted a popular program on Pacifica Radio Network called The Aware Show. Based on her desire to live in a more conscious world, Lisa created The Aware Show to feature best-selling authors and experts in the fields of natural health, 
cutting-edge science, personal growth, and spirituality. With a background in healing arts, she is considered an expert herself in the field of lifestyle and transformational media programming. In addition, she comes from a long line of entertainers, including her aunt, actress Terry Garr, and her grandmother, Phyllis Garr, an original Radio City Music Hall Rockette. Lisa also hosts a show on Hay House Radio called Being Aware in a series for Gaim TV called Gaim Inspirations, as well as filling in as a regular weekend host on my favorite Coast to Coast AM. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Lisa Gar. Hello. Hello, hello, Eldon. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. In the opposite position over here, I'm usually interviewing you, which I... Thoroughly, thoroughly love to do. So, and how much fun is that? I mean, you know. Uh, For years, yeah, I've been interviewing you, probably a decade. No, I mean, I, yeah, but it's fun to have the shoes flipped around, you know. Yes. I mean, I, I've had George on this one. George has had, you know, it's just fun to kind of flip that stuff around. I'm going to ask you some really personal things today, see? This way I get to know more about you, Lisa. Oh, great. Right. <laughs> you know, the, the last time I saw you, and it, person to person, and we were able to talk, you stated you were working on an ambition, and you continue to amaze me and everyone around you. I, every time I turn around, you're doing something new and something brilliant and something bright. Your ambition is to become the new Oprah Winfrey. How's that going? <laughs> well, um, it's interesting because I've... I just continue to say yes to what works and whatever can provide a bigger platform for people like you, communicating messages that inspire positive growth and change is kind of my lifetime mission statement. And um, I can tell you how that came into my mind, and uh, you know, it's a part of a bigger story, but it's a really, it, it, that's exactly where I'm going is, is my my goal, my purpose, I think, is bigger than a goal, is to communicate what you have to say, what many, many people like you have to say, to hundreds of millions of people. And it seems to be why I've been put on this planet. And sometimes it's really challenging because building these platforms or being, you know, a part of growing this platform definitely can be challenging, but at the same time, you can't do anything else. It's truly, honestly, why I'm here. And it's supportive. It's reciprocal. It's it's part of my bigger plan. And the, I don't know, the plan for um, for me here at this time. You're and very, very <laughs> modest. You, know, you, you give the credit to all these people you bring on your show, but you bring something to the show, even when you have, you know, some bright star is your guest that uh, that you just don't find on other shows. And that's to say nothing about your own brilliance, your own contribution, your own personal story. And I want to get to that. I mean, we're going to talk a lot about your own personal story and your wonderful book, Becoming Aware, but I'm going to stay for a minute on you, okay? Okay. I have to ask this. Since your grandmother was an original Radio City Music Hall Rockette, did yeah. you happen yeah. by any chance to know... Miss Radio America, 1929, Leela Osborne. She, too, was a rockette. Last time I saw her, now about 20 years ago, she was still rocking strong. I mean, did you happen to somehow cross paths? Wow. No, I didn't. I mean, I was I was following my 
aunt around for a long time, and and her mom is my aunt's Terry Gar, and then her mom Phyllis Gar mm-hmm. was the Rockette, and right. I have a long, long line of entertainers in my family. There's vaudevillians. There's a lot of of people that in my family. It's kind of in a a bloodline, if you will, of of wanting to do. Um, have a platform, I guess, if you think about it. Yeah, to have a platform for performance was what they were into. But my Aunt Terry had a brilliant, brilliant mind for script and for knowing what was funny and humorous and her timing and her study of the timing and and her her colleagues, I mean, Coppola and, you know, it, just incredible people that she got to hang out with and Carrie Fisher and and yeah. cool, cool, cool people that I got to, I was exposed to, and I got to see at a young age. Gene Wilder and um, oh my God, your aunt was in a lot of movies. I'm not sure that our listening audience would even know that, but I mean, she was in Young Frankenstein, Tootsie, uh, Close Encounters, yeah. uh, Mr. Mom. The, she was in The Black Stallion in Black 1979. Stallion. Yes, one yes. one from the heart. Now one from the heart had to <laughs> that so that well one done, had man. to get some special attention for you because at that time in your life, I mean, this is a time when nudity in film was not really common, and right. this this was the only film that I believe she did have some nude shots in. But this was 1982. What did the guys have to say to you about your aunt? Well, I remember going to that premiere, and I was uh-huh. young. I was you know a teenager and. I was not able to, you know, I don't know, I mean, my mom covered certain parts because it's really awkward, but <laughs> but it was, I remember that experience of how she was just growing and growing in terms of um, breaking through barriers and molds, and very, very strong woman, very strong in terms of being a feminist, and really, in, I mean, not, not an outspoken feminist, but someone who had a voice for women and it is it is so 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 challenging today to see she has ms and she had on top of that a brain aneurysm birth so i know that she is still in there and i know that she can still hear me and i know that she can still feel me but she's just not able to communicate what she was so brilliant at eldon and it really, I, I, you know, saw her of the holidays and her birthday and my daughter's birthday are the same days and she came to mind. I mean, we, we see each other a lot and I just want so much to be able to communicate more. Her whole bookshelf, all of her bookshelves are filled with old Hollywood books and she just relives and relives. And I'm sure that she's still able to hear it because of what I know about being in a coma, what I know about being right. in an altered state, and what I know about about oneness and expanded consciousness, I know that she's there and that she registers it. But uh, her communication is getting a little bit better, but it goes in and out. There's good days, and then there's not good days. So uh, I didn't know that. I, 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 uh, I was unaware that... Uh, that's where she was today. Yeah, uh, and that's 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 the sad part. It it's is a, really challenging. Yes, it's so, challenging. So, 
I look what at that was... sometimes, and you know, and initially I got angry at God and said, "Why would you rate, waste such an amazingly talented brain and hide it and, and turn it into, um, you know, submission?" And then I realized, you know, that she is still there, and have had the privilege of learning so much about the brain and how you can truly communicate and. Um, Jill Bolts Taylor, who did that incredible you know, book and story about being in the coma and how mm-hmm. she, you know, gave this whole list at the end of her book about what not to say to a person in a coma and what to say to a person right. in a coma. And I loved that because it made perfect sense about how to communicate to my aunt. Yeah, that's so an incredible is, uh, story. And you, when you say that, I, I have to ask you this. A, a friend of mine uh his nephew recently, in the last, um, what, three, four months, I guess, was involved in a, a vehicle accident and was in a coma. And uh, mm-hmm. there wasn't a lot of hope given at that moment. And a neurosurgeon friend of myself uh, and myself helped him with what to deal, what to do or how to deal with the information, et cetera. And we, we suggested to him that, he used music because of, there's a good deal of research that shows it. In fact, you know, we'll talk about some music psychology later when I ask you about your own songs. But there's a good deal of research that shows music from given errors, music that has some real meaning to people, seems to have the ability to revive certain states of consciousness. So at any rate, we, we suggested to Ernie that he indeed employ music and we gave him some links to get some literature and he talked to his doctors etc now i'm not saying that it was because of the music but the boy did recover and is now in a wow. therapy clinic in and they believe the music had something to do with that they did see responses and uh so uh, systematically they just kind of accelerated i could tell you what was done off the air if you wanted but have you have you considered doing that sort of thing, Lisa? Are you familiar with it? I am not familiar with music therapy. However, I know a lot about frequencies and how they are um, awakening and and healing. But I have not tried that with her. She went down the medical route initially, mm-hmm. and um, there were several... Um, experimental drugs that Pfizer had put out that she became a spokesperson for in the beginning. But every situation is different, and right. MS is the type of, of virus that can speed up or retard, and it can do both in an accelerated pace. So it is a, uh, I wish, something that I could put my finger on to say this helps more of, but I know that Music would probably be a great suggestion, and she reads and, and watches television and so forth, and, and you know, it still has the use of a hand, one of her hands, um, and a little bit of the use of her legs, so it, it accelerated pretty fast at a certain point. So, she's kind of far along with it. So she's in a coma now, or she's no. not? No, she's just in a, she's in a wheelchair. Okay. All right. Okay. I misunderstood. I thought she was still in a coma. Uh, 
growing up in a family like you, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm about to ask you a big question, and we've got a break coming at me, and the computer's going to boot us out. So instead, I, I'm going to I'm going to give you a little promo, and then when I come back, I'm going to ask you what it was like for you as a child, and we're going to go into your book, Becoming Aware. We're speaking with Lisa Gar about her life, work, research, and new book, Becoming Aware. It's a terrific read: How to Repattern Your Brain and Revitalize Your Life. It's one of the best that I've read, in, I guess, in my lifetime. I highly recommend it. You can learn more about Lisa. Visit her website at theawareshow.com. Okay, remember to join Revender in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High Is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Lisa Gar about her life, work, research, and delightful book, Becoming Aware. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. It can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Okay, we just played some of Boston performing more than a feeling. So please tell us, Lisa, why is this music important to you and how does it instruct us 
about who you are. have to wait just a second or two to hear Lisa. We just lost her on the line, but I think that's due to all the big storms that are going on in California right now. Oh, so we are gracious. working to get her back right now. We should, we've should. we got a backup number for her, so we should have her back. Get her on her cell phone. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So w- there was a problem with her landline. We had a secondary landline uh, also, didn't we? Um, yes, we do. We do. She is there. I'm getting text messages from her, so we just need to make, make the, the connection. Make the connection. All right. Well, when we get her back, we'll ask her about how important that was. What do you think it would be like to be a, a teenager? You go to a movie opening, and it's your aunt on stage. You know, you're a young, attractive teenager. You know there are guys interested in you. And, and, th- and this is... Like 1982, I, I believe that film was released. Yeah, it was released in 1982. Uh, what do you think that would be like? That would be really challenging. You know, I mean, when I think back, it's, it's one of the things you and I have talked about a lot. You know, when you're brought up in the 70s and 80s, you're not aware of how sexist the world is. But now when you watch shows from that period... It's like, my gosh, did we really watch that? So, yeah, I can think of, you know, being that age and having a family member. Do, I mean, that is would just... Would you be mortified? That 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 would be huge. I uh, think it I, takes a lot of courage, and I think that's what Lisa has, you know. She has courage in what she does, so that is part of the, the family gene that I is I just wonder how many on. extra boyfriend offers she might have had followed, because, you know, her aunt's a very pretty woman yeah. you know so is lisa of course but but what i did see as well it's, it's really cool when you see people's connections but i was just having a quick look around uh, at her aunt and she was in friends as well so mm-hmm. we we saw that one too and mm-hmm. uh hi hi elden and Rebecca. sorry we got you back <laughs> we're talking yes, behind yes, you back lisa <laughs> believe it or not we are finally in the middle of the el nino here in los angeles so my phone just went out it's very, very much needed rain here, but um, just this central storm is just coming over our house. <laughs> wow. You, you so now you're on a cell phone, I take it now. I am now. Is it okay? Yeah, it's okay. It's a little bit of an echo, but that's okay. I mean, you know, that's better than not having you, and I'm glad you have a cell phone that we can reach you. So you, the, you um, Did the engineer try to recall my landline? I'm sure he has. Um, but if he hasn't, he'll be trying to call your landline right now while we're talking about it. <laughs> okay, so if you hear so that sorry. One, so sorry yeah, no, no, that's all right. That's all right. Those things kind of happen. I mean, you know, the first time you were going to be on this show, we lost the station altogether due to a bad storm in Seattle, and trees came down, and power lines were gone, and, you know, back up... <laughs> anyway, yeah, so maybe, you know, there's something about that. Huh? Special electricity. Well, uh, yes, did you, interesting, yes. Did you hear us talking about what it must have been like for you in the movie house watching your aunt in 1982 and one from the heart? I did hear you talking about that. And it was okay, well, then then let me just ask you this one. It's okay, because we, we both decided that that took some extra courage. Uh, on your part, but how many extra boyfriends did you get? That's what that's what I'd like to know because you no, look a lot like they, your. I, <laughs> I don't Go think ahead. The kids my age were going to that movie, so I I think uh, 
I was safe from that. <laughs> you were. Huh? All right. Tell us about your childhood, Lisa. What was it like, you know, growing up in this this family? And uh, were you raised religious? I mean, where does spirituality enter into your life? Because you're a very spiritual person. You know, familiarize us some with your background. And then let's start talking about your journey as you tell it in Becoming Aware. Well, my background was being raised. I was raised in, I went through 12 years of Catholic school. And that would pretty much convince anyone not to be Catholic. Because wow, yeah. It, Oh, back in the day, too, and it was not a, you know, it was more of a top-down mentality, and you just need to believe in whatever these words are, and going to church was an experience of just, you know, I was mostly looking at people's shoes. Nothing mattered what was being said. It was all rote, and somebody would say something up in the pulpit, and the congregation would just remotely, automatically reply with sentences, and it didn't make any sense to me. I don't know why that happens other than, you know, years and years and years of tradition, but it seems that the meaning was lost. And, you know, being, you know, youth and going through that experience and being someone who looked at meaning in life, which you are too, and were born that way, I didn't understand it. And I was going through, you know, the school, of course, is difficult for any uh, teenager, I see my daughter's going through it right now, and kids can just be brutal at that age. As they're trying to find themselves, they're putting everyone else down so that they can look better. So it's just a tumultuous experience going through middle school. That's why they make movies about it and write books about it. Right. So I, I um, mostly was a, I, you know, at an early age, I was a dancer. I absolutely loved and still love dancing and movement and music. And then I got into fitness and, and teaching fitness because that's kind of the natural progression. And wound up after college in television production because it was kind of the, you know, what you do in our, in our family. But I went more towards the producing side, not the acting side. The acting side I tried for a little bit because I was, you know, wanted to follow my aunt's footsteps. But what didn't make sense for me was not being myself. I didn't like playing the roles of these other characters. And I think actors are brilliant that can do that, that can fully immerse themselves in these roles and embody these characters. And that is a true talent to be able to do that. And I like to, I was better and more authentic speaking from my own self or my own experience. I wasn't mm -hmm. a good actress, not a, not very good at all. I, I was. It all felt really fake to me. So here I am in this uh, television production industry, which is fairly competitive. Um, it's a, you know, who can you, how can you get, you know, the, the least amount of sleep in order to work the most, and there's a whole competition going on about that. And how can you get to the, you know, the next job, the next level, and the, that whole experience? So I started to, um, I met some friends in the entertainment industry who got me into mountain biking. And I loved mountain biking from being, you know, previously into fitness. And they were great people, really down to earth, loved, loved the mountains, loved exercise, 
had great times with these people going out. They were much, much better than I was, and I was kind of a newbie. So they would push the pace, and I would follow along, and I was the last one up the hill, and the minute I got there, they were waiting for me, they would go. And so it increased my fitness pretty quickly, and I wound up getting into the mountain bike racing circuit, which was what they were doing, and so I was doing a couple of races because of previous fitness. I got into a California State Championship um, race, right. and I was in the you know the top of the race. Uh, I was I think in second place overall in the state, and I was it was a final race that it was the last race of the series, and it was a double point. So the stakes were high, but I never really raced for the the competition of it. I always really loved my own personal experience of it, what my body could do or my mind could do. And my race was always my own race. It was it was a combination between the elements and myself and my body. And it was always such a, a mental experience for me. I really, really loved the personal best experience of racing. But the conditions were way more extreme than I was prepared for. It was 108 degrees and it was probably 5,000 feet of climbing. And right before the race was over, it was a downhill finish. And I was at the top of this mountain, and I thought, all I need to do is just get down to the bottom of this hill, and I'll be done, and this is over. And, you know, it's just I was extremely dehydrated, way too hot out. And I passed out. I passed out while I was riding the bike, and I was on the top of the hill. And I didn't know that I passed out. All I knew was I was looking towards going down the descent, and the next moment I was at the bottom of the hill and my bike was at the top. And it was so confusing to me at that moment, but confusion wasn't even really the word because I was so out of my mind and out of my body that I kept looking at the bike above me and my body was trying to crawl its way back up to the bike, but it wasn't working because obviously my balance was off. I hadn't known at that point that damage I had done to my brain. I, My helmet flew off. I found later I cracked it in, you know, several places. I was, um, I had damaged a certain part of the, the prefrontal cortex of my brain, but I didn't know that at the time. I was just scrambling to try to get up to the bike but kept falling. And I must have finally given that fight up because the next moment that was the most vivid moment, which I could recall like it was yesterday, was the feeling that I experienced, was this incredible peaceful feeling of no pain, silence, and it was a drifting, floating, endless, boundaryless space that I was going into was so beautiful and so peaceful that you could literally stay in that space forever. And that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to stay and explore what this floaty, peaceful, boundaryless, expansive, vibrant, feeling was. I wasn't going to sleep. I was becoming more awake, more alive, and more curious about what this 
was, but not from a place of a quest or of a journey. It was more of a, the more I relaxed and, and absorbed this experience, the more that I wanted. So the more expanded I became and the more expanded and the more aware I became of everything around me being the same exact thing. The top yeah. of the trees were the same as the bottom that was the same as the air and the clouds. And I even had this strange experience of Asia in my awareness because everything that I could think or feel, I became. I was. I was it. It was me. There was no, there was no boundary between me and anything. And I remember this so clearly and so vividly. And it wasn't until years, years, years later when I was interviewing Raymond Mooney, Moody that I looked up on his website, Life After Life, and I saw his classic definitions of the near-death experience. And I thought, how did he possibly know what I went through? <laughs> and it was 2,000 people at that point he had interviewed that had the same experience. And I thought, my gosh, this is, this is what I went through. And anyone who's had that kind of experience, it takes years to remember and assimilate what had what that experience was. But I do remember at the time of the accident, I heard a lot of voices, and it wasn't audibly that I heard them. I felt them. I felt feelings that weren't mine because they were feelings of yearnings to be an artist, and, and there was a... a certain attention on some of, uh, you know, like somebody else, another soul that I wasn't familiar with. And I realized that I was observing the scene of my body going through a triage experience. I was in the middle of a mountain. They had sent a helicopter to get me, and the medics came out of the helicopter, and they were around my body that was on a stretcher. And I was feeling their feeling. I had no awareness of my body or what was going on with it. Didn't, I didn't even care. It was, I was so intrigued about these, these soul yearnings of the experience of what was going on in the medic mind, or it wasn't even their mind. It was, if I could explain it, it was, it was their soul, and it was not me. And it was such an incredible experience Eldon, because I felt everything that was around me. And at one point, I heard very clearly a voice that said, are you John? And that was the first audible feeling or hear, uh, experience that I had was this voice that said, are you John? And then I realized that a medic was speaking, that I was laying down, and that John the guy that I went to the race with right. was next to me. And at that moment, I remember extremely clearly because I started to throw up. And the medics had turned my body to the side and said something about not choking on my vomit or something about that, but they had turned my... And I remember that feeling because it was pain, that right. instant feeling of I regained consciousness and my body went, was in a lot of pain. And I and felt like it was failing at that moment because I don't, I don't know what throwing up was happening from or if it had to do with the dehydration or the, the 
brain or what it, what that I don't know why I was throwing up, but I remember that moment was the such a jolt back into from from that experience of beautiful painlessness and boundarylessness that it was it was extremely contracting and it was small and it was I felt like I was in a container that was shut tight with the lid on it and there was no oxygen and that was the, the experience that I felt when I was when I came back into this state of consciousness and looked and looked at um, John who was there with me and then I, I couldn't say anything I just opened my eyes saw his eyes and then started vomiting and then passed out again because it was a lot of information at one moment. And then the next the thing that I knew I was back in that beautiful state of of drifting, of floating. I didn't see any lights or tunnels or anything that was, you know, in that in that those definitions that people do to see and experience. Mm-hmm. I just felt vast and expansive. And then the next moment was the sound of um, a very, very loud sound, and I opened my eyes again and realized that I was in the body of the helicopter, and I was, the sounds were the blades, I guess. It was something that was really, really loud that was, um, that was, that woke me up, mm-hmm. and at that moment realized I'm, there was a medic standing over me, I was in a stretcher, there was a pilot, and that was, again, way too much information. My brain couldn't assimilate it until I woke up later in the hospital with a, with a doctor standing over me asking me about, you know, my vitals. What, what's my name? Where was I born? And that moment right then when he was talking to me and standing over me, I opened my mouth to answer him because I wanted to find out where I, what happened. And that moment, I couldn't get the words out. I had somehow choked on my ability to be able to speak. My language had been broken. My ability to communicate from what was going on rapidly in my brain would not come out my mouth, and then I panicked. I completely panicked because I couldn't talk, and I didn't understand. I couldn't. It was such a trapping feeling, and I think this is how I know and feel what my aunt is going through is because I knew it was firing so quickly in my brain, but it wouldn't come out my mouth. And that was a trapping feeling. It was, it was just, just seeing in, just in jail in your own brain. And then I, through that panic and complete fear, total anxiety attack that I had at that moment, I forgot about the whole experience that I had. I forgot about the, expansion and the consciousness and everything it went away for years because I had spent the following you know year trying to regain my speech regain my memory was gone my whatever I was doing at a, as a business or a job almost completely went away because I couldn't remember conversations I was having I couldn't remember um, most most of anything, huge pockets of my childhood went away completely, never never came back. And this is something that I had to recover from. I had to learn how to rebuild my life, my brain, how to live with extreme memory loss, how to 
that doesn't come back, you have to cope with that. And and I, you know, through the series of events, wound up finding an amazing doctor who was experimenting with certain neurofeedback techniques at the time who wound up becoming world famous. Man, I just happened to have met him. His name is Dr. Barry Sturman, very famous in the neurofeedback world where he was working with kids with epileptic, epileptic uh, seizures. And, and um, I started working with him, which was, I think, a saving grace for me because he helped me go through these brain games and techniques and through the whole EEG and neurofeedback experience, I was able, he was able to determine specifically what cortexes were not responding and target those particular areas of my brain and work with those areas and reawakening and re-exercising those areas until they started to feed back to the program what it was that it, you know, it needed to reawaken. And you right. are familiar with this, and I could go into it more if you want to, but it, it, uh, it's more mostly just repetitive. It took me about 12 months through these repetitive exercises twice a week to start to reawaken those particular areas of my brain and to have those areas of my brain respond and send signals back to the computer. And that was how I started to regain my speech. That had to take Intense a intense story. <laughs> yeah, but, but a very moving story. And and uh, but I I just try to think about the courage that you had to have in order to, you know, to stay with the discipline and and recover because the repetitive exercises can be very boring. They they mm-hmm. you don't see immediate results. You have to believe that somehow they will accumulate. I mean, that, that had to be really hard. Uh, that had to be a very difficult time in your life, Lisa. It was terrifying. But you know what was inspiring and what I think got me through a lot of it was these kids in the waiting room with me. When I would go in for my visit, I would be sitting with these amazingly courageous children who were plagued by these epileptic seizures. And they were getting better. And they, their moms were talking, and I would hear them talk, and they were just dedicated. I and, don't want to cut you off, but we have another break. And the beauty of your okay. soul comes out whenever, you know, someone pays you a compliment or tells you how courageous you might be. You reflect on the courage around you. That is, you're a special person. If you'd like to know more about Lisa and her book, radio programs, and other work, visit her website at theawareshow.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest discussing her new book. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. 
Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. And welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Lisa Gar about her life, work, research, and inspirational book, Becoming Aware. Now, Lisa, I think we were disconnected uh, the last time we went to break. So when we played your first piece of music coming in as our bumper, Boston Performing More Than a Feeling, you missed the whole discussion about the power of music as it is applied in music psychology today uh, to examine areas of uh, aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, social behavior, and so forth. So there can be a good deal of self-disclosure in um, what a person chooses as their favorite songs. I'm going to have to ask you then, obviously. We just played Journey, Don't Stop Believing. Uh, Why is this important to you, and what does it tell us about who you are? Oh, my gosh. First of all, I absolutely love Boston. Boston is my all-time favorite rock and roll band. And, and, I mean, I love Journey as well, and I love More Than a Feeling, but, I mean, mean, don't stop believing, but More Than a Feeling is, is, that is one of my favorite songs. I used to, there's so many great positive memories that are associated with Boston for me. And okay. I remember, you know, the the feeling of running with my Walkman, <laughs> listening to Boston <laughs> back in the day. I mean, it, 
the the I think the association that you feel when music elevates your mood, it gets you into a different state, and then when you have a positive association with that state, it's it's a perfect combination. It gets you into a different state of being, and it's a bridge to help you continue to transform. That's my opinion of it. So Boston, definitely, that's where we go for the music. If for some unknown reason we ever need to wake you up again. (laughs) Is that it? That's a good idea. Boston would probably do it for me. I love more than a feeling. I know every every guitar lick. I know every lyric. I know all of it. (laughs) Yes. You got a boyfriend attached to it? I mean, we no, all have important music. That feeling no? of flying at the top of a mountain, of you know, of of running and the Walkman. That was what it was. Cassette. Uh, <laughs> okay. Now, when you were describing before the break your experience, uh, I wasn't clear if you were telling me that you were out of the body or if you just had this sense of consciousness that was expanded. Uh, did you, do you think, you, I mean, was this an out-of-body experience? Absolutely, because I was observing the scene below me of my body and the medics and the whole thing that was happening, but I, I was not in it. I was not in it. And at the same time, I was in a place of beautiful, complete, expanded awareness. Okay, now let's talk about that place. This yeah. place of do you think this is something that really exists? I mean, still exists, or no, I is love this... that you asked me that. Oh yes, this has been my quest, Eldon. Is forgive me for saying place. It was not a place. It's not a destination. I believe it could be one of two things. It could be a state shift, a complete shift of a state of being which has to do with consciousness and the brain and outside the, the mind and all of that. Or it could be another dimension that I somehow visited. And, and because of my conscious mind being so far offline of my you know, analytical mind, right. I think it could, I mean, it, and, and I grapple with that all the time and it's such a beautifully distinct question that you asked me is that I interchangeably use the word state and dimension as the same thing. It could be a different state of mind or a different state outside the mind or it could be a different dimension altogether. I don't know. I just am, have, I think, and, and the reason that I created the radio show 15 years ago and, and it's grown every platform known to me <laughs> to broadcast this information is because I personally believe that I am wanting to communicate to people that that state or dimension exists and through messages like yours and the 4,000 other interviews that I've done, that is where why I'm why I'm on this quest, Alden, is to have people understand that that experience is obtainable 
for every single person. You definitely do not have to fall off a mountain or go into a coma or any type of unconsciousness. I don't recommend it. But I do think that we can access these different states of being or dimensions, if you will, if that's where your belief system can take you, through information, through meditation, through elevated mood, through music, through whatever it is, through through what you're talking about, of course. And um, I'm preaching to the choir, but, you know, I believe that you can. Now, I would love to know your your perspective on that from what you've done your entire life and what you've seen with, um, you know, mind programming and everything that you've done. Do you ever see people go into different dimensions? I'm sorry, I'm going to turn this into a question because I'm insatiably curious about this. Do you see I, that people... I, I love it. You're... I love it. You're going to interview me on my show. I'm sorry, but you I, know, that's, I have that's to a know. Great, conver- great conversation we could have, but but for the moment, let's stay here. Let's let's oh. think for a second that I, I just want to flesh this out. I'm not avoiding you. I will come back and answer your question. I promise. Okay, but okay. let's just assume that it is another dimension, just for clarity. Okay, um, okay. and and. In this out-of-body experience, in this conscious state, uh, experiencing this other dimension, you mentioned pre-birth. You, you were experiencing souls and their, uh, their purpose, their destiny, yeah. if you will. Uh, and, yeah. and, and you were, you were somehow exchanging or not exchanging because I'm not sure that they received from you, but you were able to extract. Now that's a bad word too. You were able to hear their soul yeah. purpose somehow. I'll, in I'll put some... it into words. Yes, I've please. I've looked into that. Yes, and it was their yearning that I felt. I felt their yearnings, their unmet needs. I felt their Souls calling, if that is the best way I could explain it, I felt what was unfulfilled for some reason was what I was able to experience, maybe because it was louder or it was more in, in the, in, it was a more of a dominant um, vibration, but I also was probably matching what was going on in my life. You know, I was in this unmet need of this, uh, unfulfilled purpose, this giant screaming purpose in my life that I can't do anything other than live today was not being heard prior to my accident. So I might have matched in them what I was experiencing as a soul myself, which is mm-hmm. so interesting. Okay, so we have individual souls in the afterlife. This, this is where I want to go. There are a lot of people that talk about merging, this immersion into the one, just this this cosmic oneness, the loss of uh, identity, self-identity. That's how, you know, it's it's described. That's not what you experienced. You experienced individualism in your NDE. Have I got that right? Individualism? 
Mm-hmm. You were separate, distinct, and and, uh, and so were these other souls as you uh, felt them. This was a, an well, individual experience. No, in a, it, it had to have been. It had to have been combined because I wouldn't have been able to feel them. I had to have been able to to experience what they were experiencing in order to know what it felt like. Now. I have never spoken. I've never spoken to these individuals since then. I don't know if this is truly their calling. I just sure, know that this sure. is what I experienced. And the combining of souls is exactly what I experienced. That, that is very true because I was able to feel, get, feel their, their individual desires, yes, but in a combined way. Does that make sense? Well, I understand in a combined way, uh, but I suppose, I guess what I'm trying to flesh out here is there seems to be two uh, storylines, if you will, that come out of NDE research. One storyline is the immersion storyline, the classical uh, Eastern uh, Nirvana, escape from moksha, the wheel of rebirth, you know. Uh, we just lose the sense of who we are and, and immerse in the one, and that is the destiny of the soul. So all that the soul does in that process is to shed its ego, shed its, uh, its sense of individuality in order to obtain this, this immersion, okay? That's one storyline. The other storyline uh, really goes more like, uh, you know, there's a sort of eternal progression. Uh, life is a school. We're learning in this school. Uh, we're gaining uh, in our understanding and in our spiritual growth. And, uh, and you know, reincarnation takes us closer and closer. And, and there's a sort of, there's this idea that as we prosper, as we progress, we gain greater wisdom. And in some senses, perhaps even, we become like God. We, we gain God-like powers. We have the ability to create our own, uh, and so on and so forth. These are two schools, and the two schools, even though some fail to recognize it, are really mutually exclusive. So my question of you, from your personal experience, is... Do the two merge? Are they separate? Where? What did you experience, Lisa? It's. Um, I will say probably a little bit of both because I didn't feel like I was God or come back with any specific powers other than a total life transformation. After that point, my perspective on everything changed. I realized that we are, that I was living so small before the accident. And when I had that experience of everything being interconnected, I realized that we are such a part of something so huge and so massive and so much larger than us that it no longer served me to live with blinders on. I now live connected to the greater whole. I, when I do things, I think about the experience someone else will have if I do this or what this 
animal can feel or how this impacts you know the others or the earth or i mean that is that is truly how i have changed since that experience and i think prior to that i was living in kind of a one-dimensional universe and now i live in a multi-dimensional universe where i understand that there's different you know perspectives feelings greater whole everything is all around me but I also have been able to play with that a little bit and jump into different states of being in my mind and through visualization, create through some great visualization processes where I'll, I'll go through a visualization where I actually jump in my mind to another dimension, create what I want there, and then bring that essence, feeling, and frequency and vibration back to now. And that's something that I've also been playing with and I do these visualizations with my daughter you know with my family and so forth and we create incredible things from this so I I do believe I don't know if I've specifically answered your question but I do believe that I did have a little bit of both of those experiences where I it opened up my reality it cracked open my mind into a totally new state of awareness I have to ask this. This is off schedule, but goodness, you just opened up something. You must share with me and our audience this process where you go to another dimension and you visualize or whatever you do, do there. I don't want to put words in your mouth. And then you pack it back here. Tell us how you do that. So fun. It. I go into a deep, deep state of of relaxation and quiet the mind, quiet the body. And I go into, um, I've actually recorded this um, visualization process. I go into an elevator in your mind and I call it the elevator of consciousness. And I go through a process where we drift to higher states of consciousness, passing floors of judgment, passing floors of negativity, passing floors of you know, and ascending up, 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 up and higher so that you start to actually go to a higher state of consciousness through these floors, through this visualization process. And then you meet a guide. And one of the floors you get off and you meet a guide and you visualize what your guide looks like and you have a dialogue with this guide where you talk to the guide and you ask the guide's name and you ask the guide for information they might have for you and you thank the guide for always being there and you recognize you have assistance and guidance in your life and then you can only go back into the elevator as long as you make the agreement that you're ready to move to the next level and experience the next level at its fullest. You make the agreement, you go back into the elevator and you go to the highest state of consciousness that you can go to and you step outside of the elevator and that floor is called your dream realized and you go into your dream realized and you fully immerse yourself in that vision you see it hear it feel it touch it taste it smell it think it feel it everything and you turn all of that up and you fully immerse yourself and you fire and wire together your neurons in your brain and you make this fully incredibly elated experience of your dream realized and then you look back at all of the experiences that needed to line up, synchronicities, things that you thought were crises that turned into incredible adventures, and you think you're grateful, and it's the latest state of gratitude for all of those things that needed to line up, 
to happen in order for you to have your dream realized. And then you look forward to all the potential generations that are impacted as a result of what you have created. And you're in a deep state of gratitude. And you go back into the elevator promising to bring back the feelings and the vibrations, the essences of that dream realized to now. And we drift back floor by floor by floor back into this moment. And it's a super powerful visualization process that takes about 20, 30 minutes. And then you reignite it throughout your day to be able to continue to fire and wire together those neurons and, and that visual memory and inside your mind and and literally start to recall that as if it's happening several times throughout the day. And, and, and incredible things have been created as a feedback of people that have done these this process with me and um, created incredible things in their life. And it's just a... It's something that I I uh, recorded in, in several visualization processes that I do, and somebody so later beautiful music too. Where do we get the recording? It's called the Aware Guide, and um, you can access it through the website. It's theawareshow.com forward slash guide. Oh, in my book, <laughs> in my book. <laughs> I put in a QR code that you just scan your phone across and it will take you to a video of that visualization process as well. I added it in the book because it's it's such a um, powerful process. And there's a couple of them in my book where I take people to, I call it quantum jumping is one right. of them because you, you literally jump into another reality. And then this other one is um, remembering your future. And I, I recorded them and I put them on my book so that people could go on a journey with me as well as just read it because I'm a you know, a multimedia person. I like to be able to add interactive media into a book. I think that <laughs> for the visual and the auditory learner and the kinesthetic learner, I, I'm all of those. So I wanted to put that in my book. So that's Another where, one of the two bonuses that comes when you yeah. read your book. And as you point out, there's Correct. more than one. So, all right. <laughs> yeah. We've got a break in just a couple of minutes, but I think we have time for this. What was your doctor's prognosis after the accident? Did they expect you to recover? Dr. Sturman, he was um, incredibly hopeful. No, 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 not, not he, your, your oh, you standard, yeah. You're in the hospital, oh. yeah. Oh, yeah. That was an interesting experience. No. he. I was released from the hospital after the eight bags of saline solution and a couple of days where they simply looked at it as dehydration and a severe concussion. And back, you know, 15 years ago, you're released from the hospital in that state. There was not the awareness there is today of traumatic brain injuries and all of the research that's been done on concussion, post-concussive syndrome, and memory loss. And that's something that I have spoken a lot about was is when, when I was released with no information, with nothing, no diagnosis, no, I mean, no direction, nothing. No, it was incredibly terrifying. And... It was to my family, to my friends. They didn't understand me. They didn't understand how they had kept having conversations with me that I would not remember the depression 
the 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 cave, the the months and months of staring, the, all of these things come along with going through a traumatic brain injury that people don't understand. And luckily, I've interviewed incredible people since then. This particular author um, who wrote a book called The Ghost in My Brain. It's a chilling story of his, you know, for 15 years, he coped with this, with not even knowing he lost the ability to see the, from the right side. Right. And, and, and it was just a, um, you cope with, and the brain adjusts, just to, like anything you were talking about, to what it knows, and it doesn't know what it doesn't know. So you cope with anxiety, you cope with depression, you cope with memory loss, you cope with with bouts of total fear and panic, and you say nothing because you don't understand it, and you go into a cave, and that is what happened for a long period of time with me until I started to um, get some help, and it's also not a one-time okay, thing. I'm going to stop you there. When we get back, oh, we'll God. talk about getting okay. the help. I just wanted our audience to get a picture of how you were discharged so all right we're glad you tuned in today we know you have many choices and we're grateful you chose to join us we love your feedback so please join me on facebook and or drop me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com i love sharing your letters and comments on the show and that's a great way for you to participate we'll be right back following this short break you're listening to provocative enlightenment with eldon taylor What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by... Joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show.
Welcome back. We've been chatting with Lisa Gar about her delightfully inspiring new book, Becoming Aware. In this half hour, we will take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Lisa, we just played your third musical choice, Daniel, by Elton John. Why this one? That's my brother's name. (laughs) And again, a really great memory from that song, Uh, I remember driving home, long road trip once, and my brother was away. He was out of the country and just missing him a lot. But I specifically remember looking out the window and beautiful stars in the middle of a desert somewhere. And that that song came on, and it was just one of those indelible memories. So that's, that's always a good memory for me. <laughs> There's no Daniel attached to it, huh? My brother. That's my brother's brother. name. brother. Okay, I missed yeah. that. There you, okay. you missed it. Sorry. Yeah, that's my brother's name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where is your brother so today? My brother, he lives 45 minutes from me today, which is great, and we're super close. And he's always been my, you know, for some reason my brother's always been my hero. And he's a really brilliant artist. And... um it's just, you know, he's all, he was just the classic older brother that took care of his younger sister. And he's amazing. I love my brother. And where was and he? And that song reminds me of him. What was that? Where was he? When you, when you came out of the hospital, was he key to your recovery? Um, gosh. I don't know if he was in the country at the time. He wasn't, no, he wasn't a big part of my recovery. Mm-mm. No. So so this protective sense is from your childhood. Yes, 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 yes. Definitely from my childhood. And still today, you know, he we have an amazing relationship. And and I love him so much. And our, we have kids the same age. And it's, it's, you know, it's great. We just had a good time during the holidays together. But there's so many missing parts from the when I got out of um, that, you know, after the accident and out of the hospital. What is consistent, and the person who's really helpful was, remember I told you that there was a John that I went to the race with. Right. I later wound up marrying him <laughs> because he was the one who I stayed at his house after the accident, after I got out of the hospital mm-hmm. for months because I couldn't drive, and I had no idea what I was doing. And he allowed me to stay at his place for a good three months after that experience. And he helped put a lot of pieces back together again for me. And thank God that I had somebody that was consistent during this experience so he could feed back to me what what I did during that time, what happened, and was really helpful. So, <laughs> so, yes, he became my husband, and uh, and um, we are still married. I, you know, fifteen years later, and um, and he is my rock in many, many ways. That's a pretty incredible and romantic story. I like that. <laughs> How long did it take you to regain your memory? Well, as I said, there's many parts that are still missing, but 
I work at it a lot. I work at, I think that's one of the other reasons that I love doing the radio show is because if you don't use it, you lose it. And that's my belief. So I am constantly researching and then the next day remembering and then researching and remembering. And I, that exercise of why, and when I do the radio shows, it really helps build, I guess, those, those particular um, bridges in the brain of exercising memory. And the more that you do it and the more that you, you know, these, I think that luminosity and all those brain games are terrific for just exercising the practice of memory. It's, when you say it's, all the brain uh, it's very games, very important for me. When you say all the Pardon? brain games now, are, are these brain games that anybody could find? Like they could get on the internet and and participate in them. Are these the games that were tailored for you specifically? Um, well, the brain games like Lumosity, Lum, Lumosity, yeah, anyone could Lumosity? find these. What? Mm-hmm. Yes, but what you do, you know, is amazing through inner talk. Of course, it's all mind work. It's all mind work. Anything that has to do with exercising the mind. The specific, I call them brain games, that I did for my recovery was specific to me. But there are EEG centers and neurofeedback centers all over the country. And there are practitioners and there are centers. There's a specific one here that I still go to called EEG Institute. And there's a Dr. Siegfried Othmer who runs this particular center. He's brilliant. And they they work with, they've done incredible PTSD projects and uh, an enormous amount of research. And they work with memory and anxiety and depression and brain balancing. And basically all that I understand that EEG and neurofeedback does is that it teaches the brain to self-regulate. So the practice and the repetitive exercises, what I experienced was electrodes on the brain and then there's also uh, music that's played and there's also a, a, something that you put your hand on that all feed back positive sensory experiences when your brain goes into a certain state of frequency that's recognized by the computer program. And you do that by... Um, a certain amount of focus, a certain amount of awareness, and it creates reward on the screen. So, for example, there's an airplane flying, and it flies above the horizon line when when um, when your brain is in a certain coherent frequency. If you start to defocus or fragment your, your brainwave pattern in your thinking, then the airplane flies below the horizon line and can, and creates a negative reward, so that a negative pattern, so that their brain is constantly achieving the higher reward and the the higher uh, the frequency, and it allows the brain to self-regulate into that frequency, and that's why uh, that's what I call brain games. I um, I love these; they're very well programmed and thought out, and have been used for decades, and allow the brain to create a certain pattern through repetition of self-regulation. And yeah, that's no, what it, my experience has been. 
Have you used, I mean, there are commercial programs that are available that you can buy and install on your computers that do basically the same thing, you know, bio, sophisticated biofeedback devices, some that are aimed at uh, lowering your blood pressure, not just, uh, you know, training your brain. Have you used any of that kind of thing in your recovery process? I have not. I'm aware of those, but I believe because when you go to a, an institute or a center, you work with a practitioner that does right. a full evaluation, and then this practitioner works with the program that is curtailed towards your specific need, and these programs are powerful. So I don't, I mean, uh, lowering blood pressure, and that is great, but I like something that's a little bit more specific towards my own brain. Right. That's my own personal belief. Okay. So then let me ask you this, okay? And I don't mean this to be, uh, what, uh, impolite, but it's pretty common for people today to have, um, let's take your radio show. You do a show every single day. You're doing uh, research for every single one. Now you're down the highway. Maybe it's three months. It's four months, and you had a guest, and and they had a book, and oh, what was it? And it's not there. Do you have that kind of experience still today? Yes, I just did. I I was talking to you about the ghost, the um, ghost in my brain book, and I could not remember the author. I knew it was oh. Elliot, but I didn't know his first name. Okay. Yes. So, so what do you do then when, when that happens to you? What do you do? do you, I mean, most of us find it frustrating. Okay, that's a given. But what do you do to stay tuned up? Is that why you go to these centers still, or is there some other secret that you have? I. That's a, a great question because I've had so many of those experiences that I've trained myself not to panic during that time. So I relax, Be, and I. I see this happen when somebody does reach for something and it's not there, and then they just go through this cascade of, of oh, my God, I can't remember, and you get stuck into that I-can't-remember pattern. Right. I've seen my father do that a lot. It's so important to just relax and know that the information can flow and just not judge yourself so much for it and go and research it later if you really want to find out and go through specific um patterns where you can do memory exercises. I mean, my memory exercise is going and doing the shows every day because I research and then I I uh, talk about the information the next day, which puts it into the long-term memory, and then I can talk about it later. And I've interviewed so many people who have these incredible abilities to just spout out phrases and quotes, and it's amazing to me. And so I finally asked, how do you do that? And there's a list of quotes that they remember and memorize and and that they find deep inspirational meaning behind and they can actually sit back. And, and if anything, is just a practice. So the first thing I do is I don't panic when something like that happens, and then I'll look it up later to just, you know, build the memory block. All right. So you're still human. Like oh, your... my God, yes, of course. <laughs> it's, yes, and I started to say that for the last break. It is not a one-time-fixes-all solution. When you have a brain injury or go through a concussion or, or any type of symptom like that, you don't just fix it and then everything's better. It's, for me, a constant, constant process, and that is why I love what I do because it's a 
it's a constant process of exercising my memory. Well, you do it very well, and you have very many people that just admire you more than you know. I like your notion of awareism. Unpack that for us. What do you mean by awareism? Mm-hmm. Awareism, as I've interviewed over you know four thousand people, Eldon, I've taken away some nuggets that I use in my own life, and that I have that I wanted to put in the book, and they're they're awareisms, and these are things that I have discovered just through what I do, and I love it. Um, I wanted to share them with people, and they're at the end of most of the chapters in the book, and um, it's just, you know, little things about what I just said, reframe the um, panic of not remembering something into peace. Um, Be aware when you're um, of your pattern, you know, little things like that, where I did a great interview once where I was talking about um, gossip, and I was talking about why that pattern exists in the brain and where that came from, from our um, primitive days, and that it was a meaning of survival. And when you learn something like that, then you realize that there's no longer a need for something like gossip, and you can consciously circumvent that pattern. Things like that, nuggets that I wanted to drop into the book that made a difference to me in my life, and um, and I wanted to share with people. And a lot of you, them are very well known, and some of them are not so well known, and they come from my filter or my perspective of what I've heard and how I applied it to my life and how it worked. And um, I've extrapolated little little formulas of success from people, and it's that's what the awareness are in my book. You speak of authors who memorize um, phrases and statements and quotes and so on and so forth for whatever reason. You know, your awareisms are worthy of that kind of attention. When you focus on action instead of blame as a couple, you will grow from challenges rather than allowing them to weaken you. That's one of your awareisms. What do you mean by that? Yes. Oh, my goodness. I had this um, conversation yesterday on my Hey Hush radio show. If the turn of the year has happened and there's a tendency, there's this uh, question I was having, this quandary, do I look back and learn what I needed to learn from last year and, and really preserve the learnings and dwell on what didn't go well and, and try to learn from my mistakes? How much time do I spend on that? And how much time do I spend on creating newly into the future, going into the unknown, um, creating new ways of doing things that aren't proven yet, but that you have faith and trust that will work? How much time do you spend on both? Do you look back or do you move forward? And so I had this great conversation yesterday about that. And my decision and the uh, opinion poll from the audience was move forward, stay in action, about you know, more than you look backwards. So it was about 60-40 by the end of the conversation. Look backwards, learn what you need, but 60% of the time stay in action. And I even think it's more today in my my feelings of stay in action. Learn what you need to learn, preserve the learnings. There's all sorts of, you know, accountability and, and uh, confidence builders that you can get from learning. But staying in action and moving forward. And there's also a whole body of, thought of that you can visualize and manifest what you want, that you 
you can do and you can sit in a chair all day long. You have to get on the ground, make the phone calls, do what you need to do to make things happen, stay in action. And I think it's a, it's a huge healer to stay in action rather than complaint or fear. Action is my antidote for fear. Stay in action. I love it. I've been uh, selfish. I've been ignoring questions uh, from our chat room and the phones, and so I'm going to turn to that for a minute. Out of the chat room, Richard asks, is her current condition one merely of renewed perspective or did something spiritual, he has that in quotes, happen to her at the accident, or is the experience of rebuilding her brain the basis of her newfound powers? It's a combination of both, to be honest with you. It's not just the brain, and it's not just my mind. It's my level of consciousness that fuels my life. It's, there's a, gosh, there's, I don't know if there's enough time for this story, but there were some incredible oh, things tell that happened in that all right. moment. Okay. The, um, remember I told you that I had a feeling of Asia, or the, a sense of Asia in that experience? Right. Uh-huh. I... That was back, you know, 15 years ago where that happened, that feeling of Asia. And it was a very vivid experience for me when I came out of that um, that uh, near-death experience or that, that journey into expanded consciousness, this, this feeling of Asia. And I never knew what it meant. And last year, I found myself in Asia assisting or at the side of a very, very dear friend who was going through the exact same near-death experience, not not the exact same, but through an experience of drifting in and out of consciousness and making that choice to stay or to go. And I wound up at his side, holding his hand, feeling his life force moving in and out of his body, and... I later reflected on the fact that somehow in my state of incredible expanded consciousness as a soul knew that that experience was going to happen or did it already happen? Did I go into another dimension where it had already happened? I don't know the answer to that, but I was... I, 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 this happened, this, this, um, experience in Asia happened after the book was published. And it's continually unfolding this journey of mine. And I had interviewed, um, Scarlett Lewis, who lost her son in the Sandy Hook experience. And mm-hmm. she told me a story about how her son was able to, and the artwork that he had done before that experience where he showed the, um, as you know, probably a whole body of work, I don't know much about this, where precognitive um, uh, learning or ex- precognitive experiences or memories right, right. that they've diagnosed in children and so forth, and it's something that I would love to research yeah. for yeah. one day. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if that was the, the experience that I had or, you know, the, the, the spiritual experience, yes. It awakened me spiritually, consciously, and I also had the brain to deal with physically. So it, it, it truly is a combination of both a, a spiritual 
cracking open uh, awakening and also a healing of my physical brain that um, I'm still experiencing today. Does that answer yeah, I, the question? I think so very well. I think, you know, bottom line is many of the things that we encounter in our physical lives, the physical challenges, if you will, uh, personal challenges, they're all, uh, they pressure us towards becoming uh, more aware of our spiritual selves. That's that's my take on that. Listen, tell everybody, I want them all to know where they can get your book, where they can learn more about you, how they can tune into your wonderful radio shows, your, your and, and otherwise participate in the aware process. Hmm. It is all found at theawareshow.com. And, and hopefully you can tell by my experience of talking that I, I do what I do because I love it. I do what I do because it's a continual journey for me, and I love what I do. And I, I also know that the shows that I do are a healing for me, and as a result, are a healing for other people. So tune in if you can. I, you can find out my whereabouts at theawareshow.com. You can find out about my book at theawareshow.com forward slash book. And um, stay on the journey with me. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been Speaking indeed you, my I pleasure. Talk to you forever. <laughs> the book is, and I, you, and the book is again becoming aware how to repattern your brain and revitalize your life. Author Lisa Gar forward forward by Dr. Wayne W. Dyer. I highly recommend the book. Uh, and do tune into her shows. You know, uh, Lisa does some really incredible things. So thank you again, Lisa, for your work and for your willingness to share it candidly with all of us. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well, okay? Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember... Believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.